This is the Culture Change Paradoxes webinar series from One Fish, Two Fish, and I'm Carrie Beddingfield. Culture is complex, and even if you were to follow all the steps in the great book that you've just read or the slide share that you found online, you would almost certainly not get the outcome in the big change project plan that you wrote at the start. One Fish, Two Fish has been helping organisations become faster and more agile and more high trust, more collaborative for 13 years. And what's clear in a complex system like culture is that it doesn't consistently respond to modern management techniques. So in this webinar series, you'll hear conversations with our team exploring how to, ex uh, how to address different aspects of culture and engagement complexity, and our aim is to help you put a language to some of the paradoxes you've been experiencing. Um, these might help you to plan and execute your work differently, uh, to talk to the business about it differently, and even to change your view about what the big goal is. The Culture Change Paradoxes series is for people at mastery level and full notes will be shared with the recording afterwards. So any technical terminology, any references to people or other links and resources will be shared. And today we're looking at balancing driving culture versus allowing culture to emerge. With me is Tracy Finch. Hello. Hi. Hi, Tracy. And Tracy's part of the One Fish, Two Fish team. She's been working on culture for 20 years and she has also had culture done to her. She's recently been involved in a wide range of successful and in some cases award-winning projects designed to both drive and allow culture to emerge. And today we get to probe her experiences. So Tracy, I'm going to start with uh, the big question, what, which is, what is wrong with how companies do culture at the moment? Yeah, I mean, wrong. Uh, I, I guess if you come up with the right intention, there, there's no wrong way to try and improve places to work. But I think, I think traditionally companies would look at this, come at this from a controlled, top-down approach and potentially see employees as something that they need to fix or that dynamic is something that needs to be fixed. Uh, whereas the companies that are really thriving and developing are really tapping into the energy and commitment of their people to create better places to work. Um, you know, you, you, can't, you can't make people be engaged. All you can really do is create the right conditions. And what happens in your experience when organisations do try to drive or control um, the, a change in culture? So can you describe any of the scenarios where we, we naturally and... Um, use some of the techniques we use for many other the planning processes in the businesses and where it completely falls flat? Sure. I, I think when people have ch any change done to them, you lose your sense of control and that creates stress. Um, and if companies do have a tendency, and, and if they've done it traditionally in the past to, to create a competitive advantage, you know, when you wanted to do well, in business, you created a lot of policies, you gave people very task-focused job descriptions, you applied um, ways in which you can control the way the employees did things to get a consistent outcome to consistently perform well. But today, you, you really need people to be able to bring their best selves and to contribute to the success of the organization. 
Um, and in order to do that, they, they need to have a sense of control to understand the overarching purpose behind things and to feel that they have an opportunity to contribute and shape the overall outcome um, that is best for everyone in the organization. So let's get let's get really practical. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to quiz you on a whole range of aspects of the culture change um, process, and and I'm I'd love to hear your views on you know what have you literally done in those scenarios where you're trying to pick your way between um, driving driving engagement with culture forward uh, versus allowing it to emerge. So so. If we think about how uh, large companies typically plan things, there's often a really big PowerPoint deck and there's quite a long sign-off process and there's, um, there are a lot of goals um, and um, a- outcomes that are specified long, long, long before the work, work is started. Um, so does that mean if culture is emergent that we should ditch that any of that planning process? How, how have you tackled that in a business that probably does want some kind of plan? Yeah, I think, I think that the balance is to have a direction um you know the, the way we did it at the telco company where we did some great stuff and um i think the balance is around we set a, a really strong overall direction the outcome was really clear the scope and what what we wanted to achieve and where we wanted to get to was really clear and then i think it was really brave of them this was the first time we did it that the leadership team said, okay, but the how, let's leave that to the, let's leave that to the people. Um, and I'd, I'd love to say that that it was purely like this very big organic self or, or you know, um, organizing group at the time, but it was, it was, it was kind of driven, kind, it was kind of controlled, but the how was given over to a group of employees who had no experience of cultural change programs. Um, just came and brought their life, life experience and their own subject matter expertise to, to the party. And, uh, they were just empowered just to get on and, and do. Um, and that was a really a powerful thing for not just the people involved in that, but also for the company. And at the end of it, you know, it was incredibly successful. The award was won. Um, and I can go into more detail about, you know, how we got there. Uh, but it became like a, br- a blueprint then for how, we embed design and embed cultural change in the company so it sounds like there was a a a working a working group is the sort of traditional word Mm -hmm. we would give give to that um and um so first question is were those people given time out of their normal day job you know was any space carved out so that they they had uh, room to think about and do do things yes and no (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, in theory, yes. Um, I think that the company itself is very fast-paced and has, like many companies, they have shareholders to answer to and KPIs to deliver and so on and so forth. But yes, uh, the in the essence, they were given the space to play with the problem. So it didn't, there were, there were times that there was pressure, that, you know, that is obvious. There were times where there were peak, peak business times and it was difficult for the balance their day jobs with what they needed to do in the working group. But they were really, everyone was really engaged and committed to, to solving this problem. And there was no pressure in this particular project from the leadership team to deliver something at a certain time. The group itself defined the timeline. 
And that did give us the space to play and fully understand the problem and experiment with things without feeling that time-bound pressure to deliver something. The flip side is that it did take a long time. And, you know, in today's, today's organisations, things move quickly and potentially you'd want to expedite that in the future. But the beauty of it was we did have the space to play with the problem. And how important was being able to set your own timelines? For that project, when we'd never done anything like it and where there was a team of people who, you know, some people wanted to be there, some people had been volunteered, some people have an interest in the stuff and some people would have just said, I don't really understand all this fluffy thing and stuff that you're trying to make me do right now. So it was incredibly important that I think you can't underestimate when you're putting working, working groups together that it can take time unless you've got a way to, to explore to facilitate Get storming and forming that group really quickly it can take time for that group to be as effective um, as they need to be when there's a big meaty problem to solve the time See, and space is important yeah so I'm fascinated by this concept of time and um, Dave Snowden who we have mentioned before in this in this um, webinar series who's an expert on complexity sciences talks about um, the idea, the, co the concept of trying to define time for changing something in a complex system as being a nonsense. And he, he would take quite an extreme view and say, uh, we don't set goals and timelines in our relationships at home. We don't set um, uh, agenda items or um, fixed points for our friendships. And he draws the comparison um, and he's not saying... Um, in my opinion, organisations shouldn't set timelines. He's saying it's, fruit, it's fruitless to do so. And he, he advocates setting a direction. Often our relationships and friendships have a direction or they're on some kind of trajectory. But removing the time pressure allows, um, uh, allows the team to, to move in that direction in a complex system more effectively. And I wonder, is, does that chime with your experience? Definitely, definitely, because I think, I think when, we th when we then tried to apply the blueprint in another scenario where there was more of a time-bound expectation or people thought, well, that, took, that was great what we did with the values and the branding and, you know, that, that engagement, that project. But when we tried to apply it somewhere else where there was a time-bound element and, and the direction wasn't as clear, it wasn't as successful. Interesting. Interesting. So let's talk about uh, what that team did. So you've got, drawing a little bit on my, my knowledge of that organisation, you've got a group of people who are um, clever, nice people, open, um, forward-thinking, um, uh, pro progressive, not experts in culture necessarily, and doing the best they can to take what's made them successful at work so far and apply that to uh, a quite a different kind of challenge. Mm -hmm. So how did you go about doing that? Um, it, I actually found it really difficult. When we had this you know, conversation prepare, preparing for this webinar, I found it really difficult to remember all the things that we did. You know, I, I wrote all the post-it notes down. I almost got Sharpie inhalation, just, you know, listing everything that happened. But I think the key thing was, again, it was that space and time up front when no one expected anything from us. So we were able to almost go away and try to understand 
the problem and what we're being asked to do and get clarity around that. Um, we, we also, I think, we involved the rest of the business. So although the working group was set up, we didn't do that, we didn't work in isolation, you know, that we did talk to the business frequently and often and got feedback from them. So every time that we had a, an idea or, or a way forward, then we, we would either check in with the leadership team or we'd go out to the business and say, this is, this is where we're going with this. This is what we've heard. Can we show you where we are so far? So that we were consistently getting feedback that told us we we're on the right track because it's really difficult. You don't want to check yourself in a room and pop out 10 months later with something that doesn't look and feel or sound right. So I think that that check-in process that we had with the business was really important. And we did that in ways that would easily engage people through mood boards and testing words. And, um, you know, the team acted, acted as reps out, out with the business as well. Um, and I think not only did the team, the team were just responsible for solving the problem, which was in this case coming up with a new set of values. Um, they were also then tasked with delivering and embedding it. So we didn't come up with a bunch of stuff and then hand it to the leadership team and then flip it and it become a, a top-down controlled delivery into the organization. Um, you know, that team also then identified all the different ways we could embed this throughout the entire employee experience, um, looked at the blockers, the barriers, the opportunities, and then we split ourselves up into work streams that could go and deliver those smaller pieces of work. Um, and, and again, that, that space and time, you know, we had to take big chunks out of people's weeks to do that. And again, unless you're doing that differently by getting people off site and compressing that, you do need that time in your week. And can you describe any of the, um, some examples of some of the th those experiments or, or what was the content of some of those mood boards as far as you're able to share? So what kind of things were you, were you exploring? Um, in terms of the values themselves and, and how we presented them back to the business? So in terms of the, and, and maybe it's helpful, first of all, to outline what, like, what was the north point of that mm. working group? What, what were you running towards? Yeah, so we were, we were tasked with, the outcome was a new set of values that would set the business up for where it needed to go, where it needed to be. We, we started with, we did have some values, some behaviours, but they were, they were like a sticking plaster that had gotten the business to where it needed to be, but they were, very, they were hygiene factors. And the company now needed to develop a new set of behaviours to, to ramp up, step up, go to the next phase. And so, um, you know, I think the group had a lot of data. That was key as well, you know. And I think it, it helped that there was someone from uh, whose job was people and culture being in that group because they had, it was, that person was me in that instance and I had access to a lot of data. I had access to all of the interviews we had done because we were running this in parallel with our employer branding. Um, you know, who who are we as a company? What you know, what does it feel like to work here? So we've done a lot of interviews with people to uncover what it felt like to work at the telco. And then we also had access to all our engagement data. Um, we had access to you know, just a huge amount of insight coming in. So that was incredibly useful. And we could use that to say, we've heard, this is how we've heard you. This is how we've listened to you. This is how we've got your input business. And then turn that into, um, we used mood boards. And, and that was really, um, the mood boards we played back to the rest of the business were very much stick and paste. You know, they were very basic. They were 
you know, pictures off the internet stuck on A4 boards and, and shared with the business. But people really liked them. For some reason, they really, really resonated with people. They were, there were some words which broadly expressed what those meant to be and some images which we felt brought them to life for people. And they were really successful. They landed really well. And I think we knew then we couldn't move too far away from those. And we were very careful when we came to deliver the final product that it wasn't too polished and it didn't feel like the company anymore. And is there, um, what, what's your thinking about why, why those mood boards resonated with, with people and whether would it have been different if you'd worked for quite some time, possibly with an agency, spent quite a lot of money, produced stuff that was, that was more finished and more polished and possibly more, looked more high impact? Um, would that have been any different and would it have been better or worse? I, I don't know is the answer because we didn't do it that way. Um, I get the feeling from how well it did work and how when we did when we did start to try and polish it up, people told us to bring it back. The feedback was, don't don't go there, bring it back. We liked what you first showed us. Um, I, I'm trying to put my finger on how we got it so right and um, and I, I don't know. I, I think it just must be. It, it, I think it's because we listened so carefully to we had a lot of input from the wider business before we started. And we used that as our basis to create this, these mood boards, to create this set of values. Um, and the company itself is it, it's growing and it's developing. But at its heart, people really valued that family feel, that almost startup. Um, feel to the company and so if we'd gone too far and taken it too polished and it didn't it would just not feel like us anymore and there were, I think you're mentioning two two scenarios really where you were showing work in progress um, rather than trying to present a finished outcome one was with the leadership team where you kept checking back in and saying this is what we've been working on this is what's worked so far this is what hasn't and crucially expressing what ha- hadn't worked as well as what trying to sort of rather than trying to sell what had um, and also showing work in progress to people in the business. And it feels like that's quite a crucial element of, um, and certainly that's a, that's a kind of fundamental part of the way we, we work as a, as a team is to constantly show work, work in progress. Um, and there's something about a finished item which closes down a conversation in a way mm-hmm. that, uh, and, and, uh, and puts, puts the recipient on the other side of the table in a way that work in progress uh, draws people to the same side of the, the table. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think, you know, when we showed them the movie, they had an opportunity to input and to say what they liked and didn't like about it. And as you say, when you say someone a finished product, they'll have a, a response to that, but you won't necessarily be able to unpick or they won't be able to unpick why they're responding in that way. And so you don't know where to go from there. Whereas with the mood boards, we, we got, again, a lot of insight, a lot of feedback, and then we knew where to take it next. And we knew where not to take it as well. So, so creating values um, or recalibrating re, uh, values as part of stepping into the next phase of the organization's future. That's um, great. Lots of organizations do that. You and I are working on another project right now, doing exactly the same thing. Um, but ultimately, the well, the, the, the process of creating these values has a value in its own right, and let's explore that um, 
a bit later, but the their value is in their ability to um, drive or allow change to happen. So can you describe what you did with those values and to what extent you, you drove them? Or to what extent was it pushed and to what extent you, you allowed pull? Okay. So I think there were, the way that we drove it was uh, for start there. Then there were, there were some places and touch points I guess, in the organisation that we felt needed to be aligned. Now, another company might go about this a different way, but, um, you know, the way that we recruit and onboard people, having new values embedded into that process so that the people who are coming on board understood what was expected of them when they got here and you could test um, those values and bring it into the interview process and start to explore behaviours with people. Um, Performance management, you know, that's one way we... It was driven, I guess, is to say you're now not only measured on what you get done, but also the way that you work. It was embedded in performance management. Um, I think one of the ways that it was more organically grown was we introduced a, a recognition scheme. So, and, and we listened to people about the way that they wanted that recognition scheme to be done. So historically, we had a, a process where people were put forward or they they were put forward and then those, those people were sort of rated and judged and then a winner was sort of picked out every month and then we would call them out and they'd stand up in front of everyone and get us and then and they got the same prize regardless of what, what, what effort or what outcome was given. So we designed a new recognition scheme which was more peer-to-peer based um, and where managers were able to individualise the reward and recognition according to what the outcome was or what the effort was um and and then there is another layer to that as well which is like md recognition but but it's really the peer-to-peer stuff where people could recognize and reward those values in others it where it organically grew from there so you'd um i'm gonna see if i can put those things into two different categories so you've got the driving part is does come come from the more traditional parent-child style relationship that we're familiar with with organizations that got us through the industrial era and mm-hmm. out the other side um, and and at one fish two fish we've often eschewed that and said um parent child bad uh adult to adult good and broadly speaking i do think that's the direction we're moving in but when you talk about using values um, as a hard edge to recruitment so who you let into your corporate castle and as a uh performance measure um how much money goes in your bank account um potentially or how uh possible it is to to gain a more senior role um that they do fall into the parent child category um versus some of these more organic methods they're still structured so an employee recognition scheme highly structured but it sounds like that comes from the adult to adult dynamic where the people um who are um, receiving, potentially receiving an award are also the people who are um, designing how that award structure might work and they're the people voting for who who does and doesn't get the award. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And I think also, um, you know, a couple of the other ways that it organically grew was through storytelling. So I, as I mentioned, we ran it in parallel with our employer brand and I think the, the opportunity to launch both the values and the employer brand at the same time allowed us to tell the story of our company again. And so it, we were allowed, we were 
we were enabled to say, you know, this is where we've come from. This is who we are. This is what we believe. This is what we're about. And this is where we're going. And that gave people an overarching, I guess, context to what we were doing. And then you can then see why these particular sets of values are important to get us to where we're going. You know, this got us so far. This is where we're going. This is what we need. So, again, people could see the value and the purpose behind them. Um, and, and I think we also gave people tools, like a toolkit as well, at around the same time um, to have conversations around feedback that could either challenge or recognize good and, I don't know, I don't want to say bad behavior, but good and not so good, not so, you know, the, the, the stuff that isn't stacking up. Um, so there was the introduction of good feedback conversations and we were able to model that. And, and also, you know, there were, there were advocates and champions in the business who wanted to model this stuff. So, the, you know, the leadership team being the obvious, some obvious people who are modeling, modeling the behaviors um, and also the group itself, you know, they were out there working in these ways. Um, part of the, the group itself, by setting the group up in that way, we're already modeling some of those new behaviors as well. Um, and I think, you know, when we won the award, <laughs> um, you know, people saw, oh, wow, that working in that way is really powerful. And we knew it was good, but oh, the world has just, you know, recognized that as well. And um, we had that external validation. So let's talk a bit about the award. So everything you've mentioned so far, um, no, nothing that you've mentioned would be unfamiliar to anybody um, listening or, or watching to this. So the categories of things you've done include things like employee recognition, um, uh, uh, cr creating, and you mentioned the word launch, which we'll come back to as well, launching values, employer brand, um, using Work, a working group in a peer-to-peer -peer way all these are things that other organizations would do but but with considerably less success <laughs> um so and, and what you haven't talked about are things like making salaries public or um uh banning powerpoint and excel or anything sort of or banning it, uh, email or anything hugely um radical or dis disruptive so and yet you beat off so many fantastic projects to win this award. So what was it that was so powerful about what you're very modestly describing as, um, you know, creating and launching values? I think it was, I think a, it was by the company, by the people for the people and the company. And we, you know, we did work with you guys, but we, we only really called you guys in when we really felt that we had hit a wall and we couldn't take it any further or we needed that little bit of extra shine on the end of it. Um, so, you know, we didn't have a massive budget. We couldn't spend a lot of money on the fancy stuff that might otherwise, you know, support this. It had to be real. It had to be authentic. It had to be practical. It had to be deeply delivered we did a huge amount, a huge amount of stuff in a very short amount of time. You know, I say we had a long time to play with the project, but, you know, I think it was like from February to September and then from September onwards, it was bam, you know, uh, it was delivered by the team who created it as well. So I think it, it was just that, it, that we didn't just give lip service to the working group. We didn't just say, 
give us a little bit of input now and then we're going to take it and roll with it and shine it up and polish it into something and thanks for your input. It, it was the fact that it was, it was at all stages designed, shaped and delivered by the group. And, and it had the full support of, of the leadership team. And can you um, think aloud about what changed in the organisations? If the, if the goal was to shine a spotlight on the new values and behaviours that would be crucial for providing the sort of um, uh, the structural integrity for where you want to go forward, <laughs> it, for, the, for securing the future of the business, what impact did that have? And how did you know if, if people had even even kind of taken on board any of those and understood any of those things? Yeah, <laughs> it is It is tricky because it's sometimes it is intangible. And I think one of the, the, the first things was when we launched them, <laughs> um, you know, we, we gave people the space to talk about them. So we didn't, again, we didn't just give people a desk drop saying, you know, this is it, this is the, the, these are them, this is what we expect from you, this is what it looks like. We'd had the space to play with the problem, now we needed to give people the space to talk about it. And so when we, when we launched them, one of the first things we did was get the whole business, I think in a month, in rooms, in workshops, or, you know, we, I wouldn't call them workshops, we call them experiences, I guess. At, they were just conversations. They were a way to say, this is, what does this mean to you? So people were able to also individualize them. You know, what do you understand by these values? What does this mean to you? And what are you going to do differently? Um, so people were already on that path. They started to think about what they could be diff doing differently. And it did mean different things to different people, but broadly, as long as we felt it was going to get the outcomes that we were looking for, then great. You know, the, the recognition scheme is another way to sort of see if people feel or think that they're being led, um, live. So, you know, launching, we had, we had a, a, a thing called Trailblazers, you know, just the peer to peer. And so we gave people, um, some advice, I guess, on how to do that so that it wasn't just great job high five, um, you know, there they was quite specific uh, information about how behaviours were lived and breathed and why that behaviour had that outcome and what was the impact on that. So you could see from the sorts of nominations and recognition that was taking place whether things were actually happening in the way that we wanted it to. Um, I think they're the, they're the two main things. I, main, you know, we gave people the space to talk about it so they fully understood it and could individualise it. And then we could see that it was being done because people were recognizing that in each other. They could see it in each other. We did put it in our engagement survey um, that we ran and says, you know, are they being lived and breathed? Um, and on the whole, you know, they were. So they're the main, the main way. And um, how did you, what was your approach to people who felt that the whole thing was quite fluffy? It was hard to put a finger on why this was so important uh, hard, hard to kind of get a, a grip on it or, or and those people all the way through to those people who are pretty cynical and didn't really want to talk about it largely even the people who feel that the stuff is fluffy I, I think we kept we started from a really good place I'll be honest you know we didn't start from a place where we had a, a lot of disengaged um people who didn't want to be at work and who weren't enjoying what they did 
we started from a really good place. So even the people who felt that this was fluffy stuff that I didn't really understand, I think, you know, when you, when you can say, if we do this, we'll get this, and what's in it for you is X, Y, Z, and I, I'm drawing a blank on some examples of that, then it makes it easier for them to, to put that into context. And, and I think, again, the opportunity that we gave people to talk about it to each other so they could bounce ideas off each other, like, oh, if I do it this way, you know, what, is an, what are you trying to do today that if you applied the values could have a different outcome? What are you struggling with today? You know, let's have, have a think about what, what you could do differently and you'd get a different outcome. And people could start to see how they could practically apply it. Um, then that's when people could see what was in it for them and that it had value. Got it. And, and are there any examples you can, sort of specific examples you can think of, of different ways that people did start to behave or things that started to, you started to see here in the organisation that showed you, yeah, things are changing? Yeah. I think, I think one of our values was around the way that people work together. And again, I think that program of work showed people a different way of working together just by doing it as well. And so we were demonstrating the value while we were doing the work. And like I say, it became kind of a blueprint and people got quite excited about there being a new way to work together to solve problems. Um, and, and so I think there was just a new appetite to to not own, not just get involved in your job task stuff um, and to collaborate on other problems and solutions and get involved in other aspects that are more about the whole business and helping the whole business to shine than just about you and your role and your job. So I think that was one of the, the, the key differences there and, and people being more willing to put their hand up and be proactive about um, being a part of shaping change. So it sounds like the way in which you ran that uh, team project gave, gave other people not just a, an example and a, um, an exemplar of what a different way of working might look like, but it also gave them a bit of permission that it's yeah. okay to work this way. Yeah, def- definitely, definitely. And and that it might be hard, it might be difficult to do on top, of, on top of your day job or within your day job and with your day job, but it is fun and it's rewarding. And um, I think, you know, it showed people that what, what was in it for them is also that opportunity to a, raise your profile because it, w- it, it can be very good. You know, if you're putting yourself forward and being a part of one of these sorts of projects, then it does raise your profile. It, and it is personally rewarding because you will learn skills that you can transfer into any role or place or or space because it's about relationships and people and having the tough conversations that need to happen to get things done and to break through barriers it's about grappling with things that aren't necessarily tangible and that might not have you know we didn't we didn't know what the outcome this was going to be when we started you know and even the people in the group had no idea now I wrote some values and stuck them on my drawer and thought I think that's where it might go and it was nowhere near that by the time we'd finished it was way better so I think people people also learned that um you know having a diverse group of people with the diverse experiences 
will create a better outcome as well. So, um, yeah, I'm not and, sure I answered your question there. <laughs> yeah, and the, I guess the, if I think about the way in which the, what that organization delivers, um, uh, high tech, high engineering focus, this presumably is quite a different way of working. So what kind of, um, what kind of mindsets were you were you needing to or wanting to kind of break? What were you wanting to give people permission to do? Traditionally, it's a very task-focused organisation, and um, we do this and we get that result. And I, th- I think that was the main barrier was, that, or the main thing we had to overcome was showing people that. It, it is a, as important. And I think when um, when things get tough and when there's a customer or someone wanting their thing done, that this also deserves time and space. So, you know, you don't want – people have to commit to it. Um, leaders have to give people the time. And people have to turn up to those meetings consistently. You know, that, that working party has a meeting. They've got to turn up to that consistently or it's not going to happen. I think that was the one, the one thing we had to overcome. You know, when you are an organisation that has KPIs and measurements and, and people you have to answer to, sometimes there's something needs to be done and you've got to go to that two-hour culture change meeting. And there has to be that prioritisation. We all get that sometimes the rest of the group, you know, there's going to be times when the group has to pick up for someone else. Or something. And I think that's about contracting that group in the first place and, Having that adult adult thing, there's going to be times when people can't be there for whatever reason. Let's assume that they, that the, the intention is the best, and we will all pull together and and work ahead. But the commitment has to be there from the start. The intention has to be good, and it can't just drop when things get tough. And what do you think? So, so interestingly, we're talking now about how do you create the conditions mm. in which the conditions for culture change can uh, yeah. can emerge um, so what were the conditions that needed to be in place for that team to be able to effectively work on it and itself create conditions for change yeah so I think as a I think the thing is is that the leadership team had to be fully bought into what was about to happen and it's the same with other things that we've, we've done I think starting with the leadership team, being all in the same place on this and being really clear with what is the group being tasked with, what's in their remit, what's in their sphere of control and and what can they influence and what isn't. So, you know, this is your task. This is what we need from you. This is the outcome. And these are the parameters with which being really clear about those parameters, I think, Otherwise, you know, the group could run off and do something that is, is just, or just spend thousands of money. You've got to have some parameters, you know. So everyone needs to know exactly what is expected and what, uh, you know, and to, to agree to allow people to have the space and time to do it. And I think that that was the key thing up front was getting that commitment. It, sometimes it didn't quite work. Sometimes it didn't pan out. But overall, everyone was brought into it. So that, that is one of the main conditions, you know, that 
the group has to be really clear on what's the outcome expected of them. There's some parameters that are really well understood. So what is our decision making levels of, you know, what are our levels of decision making? Where does it stop? How often do we need to check in with people? So you're empowered, but you're not rogue. You know, you're not, you're not just off. You, there are check-in points. There are, you have, we had a sponsor. We had a couple of sponsors, actually. And we learned a lot from that. The sponsor has to have a really clear role. So there was a leadership sponsor. But I think in, in the, first, the first time we did this, around the values, we didn't get what we needed from them. And I don't think we were clear enough about what we needed from them or what their role was or how they could support the group. And I think going forward when we've done this, we, we now know that we need to get a bit more clarity around that sponsorship role as well and how they can help get decisions made and, and free up any blockers for that group to move forward. And was there any kind of learning mechanism that you used either informally, formally, um, systematically, ad hoc, that allowed the group to, to sort of self-examine as it went along and make changes as it learned more about what was going to work and not work about that group. So you mentioned the sponsor was a role that, that as you progressed through the project, it was clear that needed defining more tightly. How did, how, did the, how did the team learn and improve as it went along? I think, if I'm honest, it, it, I mean, in the group, it was really ad hocly. That was just through tough conversations. <laughs> and there were some, you know, there were tears for over this, you know, there, it wasn't always easy and I think people's overarching willingness to deliver a really good result really you know I said these are bright people clever people who want inherently want to do a good job and are engaged in their work so that always overcame you know any difficulties that we had but um so the learning we, we did stumble I'm not we didn't have a nice polished way of learning I would say we did do a lot of reflection at the end um, and that's when we sort of captured our lessons and tried to apply them and we shared them with the leadership team we shared them with new groups that were being set up and some of those lessons are still being applied today in some of the new groups but I would like to say that we we had some fancy way of doing it we we didn't we we did stumble and we did lurch but we learned a lot and at the end we captured our lessons and maybe that's that's the, one of the learnings is <laughs> is how, how to how to learn more more quickly. So I'm just going to um, before I invite questions, I'm just going to try and summarise some of the principles that you've shared, if I can remember them all, um, in a way that links it back to this concept of culture as a complex system. So you talked about having a north point um, a a direction of travel that everybody was clear about and that remained no matter what the strategy or tactics turned out to be. Yeah. So clearly yeah. separating those two things out. That absolutely ties in with uh, Ralph Stacey, with Dave Snowden um, and what we know about complexity science. Um, you also talked about removing timescales or, or not imposing an arbitrary timescale that would um, that would crush creativity, <laughs> crush creativity, and that would force the group to try and use traditional management techniques to to solve a problem that probably was not going to respond to traditional high control management techniques. Mm -hmm. You talked about um, uh, 
constraints. So in complexity science, we talk about different types of constraints, but one type is enabling constraints. Um, so as a, a, on a slight tangent, if we think about all the things that create friction in business, email, meetings, things we work on a lot at One Fish, Two Fish, it, it's interesting sometimes to reflect on the fact that do we have a meeting problem or do we have a decision making problem? Do we have an ownership problem? Do we have a clarity problem? Is that the source of that? And so creating some constraints around what decisions can make can be made and what can't um, and how those check-ins need to happen, how information needs to flow can be hugely liberating. Um, so for the first, so, so that's three things so far. For the first 42 minutes of this conversation, it sounded to me like the best, most brilliantly functioning team, the most kind of totally positive, uh, you know, no problems, hitchless project in the whole world, <laughs> which I'm deeply admiring of. And then you said, yes, we did stumble and tears were shared. And that what that, and of course that's true in so many, many projects. But I think what I'm drawing from that is you kind of said yes to the mess. There's a brilliant book called Say Yes to the Mess, um, yeah. which people are always waving at me because I really don't like mess particularly. Um, but you, it sounds to me like you accepted the ups and downs of the journey and the kind of messiness and the non-linearness of the journey as just part of this slightly more emergent way of working is that right oh totally I've got a circle with this embrace uncertainty and feel your way I think you know don't set the how be prepared to go all over the places and in directions that you didn't think it would go and yeah when there's people involved with different experiences and diverse backgrounds and coming at it from different places it's going to get messy and you're going to have to let go and roll with it absolutely and and in order to roll with it the bit that you said you um didn't uh, you might improve for the future was to have a more of a systematic way of learning so you could pick up on things that were taking you off course more quickly and correct course and kind of continue in your direction um, more effectively and efficiently also absolutely part of a, a kind of complex adaptive system approach um, which is absolutely wonderful one of the things I would add as an outsider is I think there were people in the organization, including you and including at least one person I know is on the call today who were fantastic at continually pointing at those things. So it's all very well for us to talk about that now, but how do you do it in practice when the, uh, you know, deadlines are coming thick and fast for other things. The organization's got KPIs. Um, it's very difficult, as you say, to prioritize that two hour culture meeting above your other more tangible things. You need somebody, probably more than one person, who's constantly saying, yes, and this is, this is just how it's got to be. Who's kind of saying reassuring things all the time and pointing back at the picture, pointing back at the, but this is how we need to, to do this. And don't worry, it'll be absolutely fine. And I would, also, that is one of the really crucial elements that created success that you talk about. And I wondered if you might reflect on that before we invite a couple of questions. I, I would say that that's right. I think, I mean, personally, I, I was the person leading that group, but I, someone always had my back. There was always a safe place for me to go to and to talk to about any challenges I had. And also, um, the person who was championing that in the wider business and with the leadership team and when we hit stumbling blocks 
it would go and have that empowering conversation, that conversation that removed blockers and um, was the conscience of the team as well. You know, everyone committed to this. But it, so that person was, you know, we, we were the leadership conscience on this. You know, you said you were committed to delivering this, so give us the space, give us the time and do it. But I do, yeah, I do think any group like this needs at least one person who's, who's going to over, over, stand above and love it, own it, nurture it and see it through to the end. So that kind of circles us right back to the original intention for this webinar series, which is to give people who play that role, who play your role in leading the team, who play a role in that team, um, the language, the confidence um, to, uh, to stand their ground and keep pointing at the picture um, and to have other people's back. So mm. you said someone had your back, presumably said somebody had that person's back, you had a lot of other people's back. Uh, we need the, the often a way of, uh, the real confidence to stand our ground and to hold other people's back and to not to panic when we get into that messy phase. So my yeah. great desire is that people on this call are, are again, you know, noting down some key phrases, absorbing some of the ways in which you describe it so they can keep pointing back at that picture to their own organization very confidently. Yeah. So if you would like to ask Tracy a question, um, you can type it into the group chat and I'll, I'll pick it up from there and ask it on your behalf or you can just unmute yourself and ask Tracy. Sometimes people ask questions, sometimes people don't, but we do have a few minutes if anybody did want to ask Tracy a question. Hi Tracy, I've got a question for you. Hi Rick. Um, what have you seen in, in culture change work of teams sort of bringing in inspirational ideas or features they've witnessed in other places. So maybe other firms they've worked at or, or other stakeholders that their company have worked alongside. Do, do organizations welcome that or is it kind of not invented here syndrome? I personally haven't witnessed the not invented here syndrome. Thank goodness. I, I think, I think, you know, it, stuff coming in from the outside may or may not work in a new culture and in, in a different organization. But why, why wouldn't you want to invite that in? Why, you know, why, why wouldn't you want to hear that um, and see how you might apply something that's already been done, save you time, effort, energy? You know, there, there's good, so much good learning out there that I would, I would always invite it in. And I think we did invite it in in our culture change program. So luckily, I haven't experienced the, no, thank you. Don't want to hear what you did at your other company. So we'll pause there for today. We continue next week uh, with the webinar series with Rick Harris, um, who will talk about how to um, uh, encourage adoption and uh, uh, establishment of organisational values without um, asking people to sell their souls and to behave in a way that is inauthentic to them. So that's the complexity and the dilemma we're exploring next week so for this week uh, goodbye from me and goodbye from tracy um, all the webinars are available on www.onefishcoms.co.uk many thanks thank you bye bye